Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Lisa White joined FIAS after earning a degree in environmental sustainability with a minor in architecture from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a master's degree in energy and engineering from the University of Illinois at Chicago. With FIAS, Lisa has worked as a FIAS trainer and as the certification manager, as well as been a longtime member of the FIAS technical committee that developed the FIAS Plus 2015 climate-specific passive building standard, which was followed by the 2018 and 2021 updates. In addition to standard development and research, Lisa has worked directly with the Fraunhofer Institute of Building Physics to develop and implement new key features into the WIFI passive energy modeling software that FIAS uses for passive building certification. I've been seeing Lisa speak at different conferences and was grateful when she accepted the, an invitation to have a recorded conversation, especially when I found out that in 2019, she became the associate director and technical lead for FIAS, which really makes her the perfect person to speak with about all things FIAS related. Thanks so much, Lisa, for your time, and thank all of you for listening and your continued support. Enjoy. Hello, this is Robbie Schwarz with the BuildCast, and today I'm speaking with Lisa White, who is an Associate Director at FIAS. How are you today, Lisa? Doing great, Robbie. How are you? I'm great, and thanks so much for joining us on this uh, week of Thanksgiving. I thought we would start with what is FIAS and just kind of a general description of, of the organization? Sure. So FIAS um, was previously known as the Passive House Institute US. So we recently became the word, not the acronym. So it's kind of FIAS. I think of it as kind of the, the Prius for the building industry. We're a nonprofit that really set out to make passive building mainstream. Uh, and we do that through a variety of angles. We, we set standards for passive buildings, which I think we'll talk a little bit about. We certify buildings to those performance standards. We train and certify professionals to design, construct, and verify these buildings. We certify data for components that go into these high-performance buildings, kind of facilitate advocacy groups around the country, our alliance members. Really tackled it from a, a lot of different angles, trying to move them, the industry forward to be ready to execute high-performing passive buildings. I was wondering, how did you get your interest in buildings and ultimately what was your path to FIAS? Yeah, so I, I kind of, when I look back at this, I, I would say I'm almost the right place at the right time uh, situation. So I've been with FIAS for almost 12 years now and I was just wrapping up a degree at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign when I heard about FIAS through a friend, not even someone in the architecture engineering programs, but somehow knew about it through some family member. And that's where FIAS was founded, down in uh, Urbana-Champaign. So I immediately applied for an internship and worked as an intern there and then grew into the project certification program. And I've, I've been there ever since and the organization has grown substantially. But I 
kind of path toward that. I, I always knew I was interested in like energy and efficiency, even through, I kind of had a strange path through my schooling, but ultimately ended up with the uh, environmental sustainability and energy engineering as my degrees. And this is kind of the perfect, perfect fit of all of that. But once I learned, like got in with the internship and really learned about passive building, I think that's when the, the building piece really came into it for me and like the, the passion toward better buildings and, and what that can do for people. Uh, have you uh, worked on building sites uh, as I, well? I, no, I have been on building sites. I, I could say um, I've done some volunteer work. I've done Habitat for Humanity projects. I've done things at that level, but I've never seen a project through, you know, from start to finish on a building site, no. Yeah. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Bill Rose, who's mm -hmm. from Urbana uh, Champaign. Uh, did you happen to be able to have any classes with him? I did not have classes with him, but I've definitely met him through that kind of inner circle down there. And that's actually that group of, of researchers and professors is really some of the first passive building that was done in the United States back in the 70s with the, the low cow house. Um, one of my first projects in architecture school there was going out we had to measure the locale house and make drawings for it which is like the low calorie house but the a high performance building out there in, in urbana champaign no relationship to fias but just happened yeah. to be the same uh, town yeah and katrina klingenberg kind of brought passive house to the united states in illinois as well right yep yep is urbana there... champaign and she was a she was a guest lecturer at the University of Illinois as well. She did actually lecture one of my courses. I had to look back at notes to see that. It didn't stick at the time. I probably didn't yeah. know enough to know enough, if that makes sense. But yeah, it's just a coincidence. She, the first uh, passive building in the US was in Urbana, um, the, her own house that she built. Yeah. It seems like you're kind of becoming the face of FIAS because I see you at all these conferences and and whatnot, is that part of your role as associate director? Yeah, I would say my role is ever morphing, but definitely a big part of it is going to conferences and talking about passive building at different levels. I became a an instructor for our, one of our main, like our flagship program, our FIA certified consultant program. I became an instructor for that, I think almost 10 years ago. Um, so I taught a lot of trainings over time and then kind of taught more trainers. So now I'm kind of out of the training market, but go to a lot of conferences and spread the word. Yeah. Great. Uh, so we have an idea of what FIAS is. Tell us what Passive House is. Sure. Um, so I'll say Passive House or Passive Building, just because it's not limited to houses, but it's, it's really a design methodology that focuses on using passive building principles to save energy, to conserve energy, and also to create healthy, resilient, comfortable structures. So when I say passive building principles, it's really principles that follow three main control strategies. So we're thinking, and it, it's really just building science, we're thinking thermal control. So you make a good super insulated enclosure, use good windows, so you have a nice shell on your building, appropriate for your climate. Then we have air control. So we focus on air sealing and an airtight enclosure, and then using balanced ventilation to bring it, to intentionally bring in fresh air, filtered air into the space and exhaust stale air, which creates comfortable spaces. And when you do make a building airtight, we know that you need to then intentionally provide fresh air, right? 
generally there's a heat recovery system so you're not losing a lot of the basically you're not getting the energy penalty for a continuous ventilation supply so the outgoing air is transferring generally heat and moisture to the incoming air that's thermal control air control and the last is solar control or radiation control so that's really finding the right amounts and right solar gain on your glazing and also using shading strategies to allow solar gain when you want it and block it when you don't. So taking advantage of our Earth's natural resource, the sun. Yeah, yeah. When you say right amounts, are you meaning window to wall ratios or? Sure, yeah, I mean, it's it's really all a balance. And I think that's one of the beauties of passive building is you, it's it's an energy balance. So you're looking at losses that come in through the enclosure or through ventilation loads and then gains that can come in from people and solar. So you need to just, pay attention to that balance and strike the right balance of those. So if you have more window area, those windows probably need to be higher performing in terms of their U-value, they need a lower U-value. And then you also probably need less uh, lower solar heat gain coefficient on those windows. But if you have less glass, maybe they don't have to be as good in terms of thermal performance, and maybe the solar heat gain should be higher. I mean, it's all climate specific and really building specific to, to strike that balance. And then going back to the ventilation potential penalty, you're offsetting the heating energy by balanced ventilation, but not the electrical penalty, right? No, exactly. So energy and heat recovery ventilation is by our definition considered passive because the part of it where there's a heat exchanger that the air passes over each side to transfer heat and moisture is a passive process, but you do need a fan to run that. ERV, it is a fairly minor amount of energy in the grand scheme of things to run that fan, especially when you consider the air quality that comes along with making a really nice airtight building and then placing these intentional openings where you're letting in fresh air, filtering it and all of that. But there is a fan. So you've outlined the kind of the founding principles of passive building. What are you hearing with regards to cost? That seems to be one of the biggest things that I guess the traditional mainstream builders are talking about, especially in relationship to passive house. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll start by saying there's always the question of relative to what. So when we get cost data, it can be relative to an area that has no code or an area that has a really aggressive, let's say, stretch code. So it's it's actually fairly challenging to tell you a percentage. But what I can tell you is for projects that we are getting third-party data from say incentive programs or housing agencies for multifamily buildings we're seeing anywhere from zero to three percent incremental cost again relative to what that varies but relative to what teams would typically do in that area and for single family homes it's typically more it's typically somewhere in the five to ten percent rent uh, upfront cost range but even so with those the savings from energy and utility bills pays off fairly quickly. So we are seeing pretty much across the board, 30 to 60% energy savings in these projects, 30% in the climates that are a little more mild, don't have as much heating and cooling loads. There's not as much passive strategies can do in those climates and 60% somewhere like probably Colorado, um, climate zone five and above, you get quite a bit of savings from passive strategies. Yeah. When you're 
talking to people and in essence trying to convince them to do this project are you talking primarily cost or are you talking primarily comfort what's the strategy am i i mean so it totally i think depends on who is talking to the client i think the most effective ways of talking about this are selling indoor air quality and health and comfort and possibly resilience and then maybe touching on the climate angle or the efficiency angle, reduced you know, costs and affordability. That, that's a good one across the board, the, the long-term affordability with reduced utility costs. But I think what drives people really varies you know, to do passive building. And it, from FIAS, we set out to make a, a, a standard that really is the most cost optimal path of reducing energy use. We looked at source energy use and tried to minimize that uh, minimize total cost for the most source energy saved. So we looked at it from that perspective, motivated by reducing emission, carbon emissions in the built environment. But that's not often what motivates clients to do that. I think it really could be any of the additional benefits that come with passive building that are non-energy related benefits. That brings up the point, I guess, of maybe needing to explain in more detail the the peak load sure. and what what you mean and why that you have those targets and the source energy and kind of those i think there are four primary targets that yeah uh, sure is trying uh, to outline yeah so what we're getting into now are really the passive building standards which are telling you or which basically set out to quantify how far do you go with the passive building principles that we just talked about, the air, thermal, and um, solar control. Like, how do you find that balance? What is the right spot for that balance? So the kind of three, four prong approach with the certification is, is first this quality, health, and safety, which uh, leans on the Department of Energy, Zero Energy Ready Home, EPA and R Plus, and Energy Star for single family um, projects. Uh, so that's a, that's a baseline, but then for um, how far to go with passive measures on top of that, we set performance targets on heating and cooling loads, both annually and at the peak. So how much heat or cooling must be delivered to your building over the course of the year or at its peak condition? And that's irregardless of the equipment that you're using. So we set different targets on those thresholds based on climate and also based on building size and typology. So there's all these different factors that kind of influence that, that balance. So that, that's kind of the main one that really brings passive into the picture. How far do you go with these passive principles? Then that will reduce the building load significantly, meeting these first heating and cooling targets. And then on top of that, there is a factor of how much energy does the building use overall? And that we use source energy for, which essentially the biggest point is that it distinguishes between the use of electricity and the use of natural gas. With today's power grid, the use of electricity has a source energy factor around 2.8. With like today, um, with FIAS, we use a future factor of 1.8, which basically means that amount of energy must go in into the power plant, plus like transmission losses to get one unit of energy at your house. So it's just taking into effect, uh, account that power conversion and power generation isn't 100% efficient and natural gas has a lower number because you're, the combustion of that and the efficiency of that is taken into account on the site when that's used on site. So that's the overall source energy number. We have a pass-fail threshold on air tightness 
which is based on building durability. First and foremost, we looked at an acceptable amount of air leakage to avoid moisture risk in the building enclosure. So if you have leaks in your building, air travels through those, air carries moisture, and that makes your building materials vulnerable to mold or rot or other things over time. So based on the research, we set a pass-fail number for air tightness. And of course, air tightness also brings energy savings in all climates, some more than others. So that's kind of the four, the quality assurance part, the heating and cooling loads, the source energy, and the air tightness. Well, thanks for describing that. There's another organization or potentially two in the United States, depending on how you count them, that also sure. are promoting passive buildings. We have the Passive House Network and uh, Passive House International. In your previous description, I think you touched on some of the things that make FIAS unique. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk more about, maybe we'll start with uh, indoor air quality, because it seems to me like FIAS takes that much more seriously than potentially PHN and PHI, because you link with the Indoor Air Plus program, where in the other standards, it, it appears that they think building tight and just ventilation is enough to create a good indoor air quality. I'm sorry, I, I think we, we might need to take, take even a step backward though to maybe describe your understanding of PHN and PHI sure. before we get into that. Yeah, that's a good idea. So the PHI, I, I believe is Passive House Institute, not Passive Institute. House International. Yeah. So we're the Passive House Institute US. PHI is the Passive House Institute. They're in Germany. And in a very similar framework, they set standards for what is a passive house. So the US, we actually pre-2012, or no, pre-2015, I'm sorry, FIAS was certifying to the same standards as the, the PHI in the US. And then we quickly realized that didn't work as well for US climates uh, because the primary difference is that the FIAS standard has climate-specific heating and cooling load targets saying you in Colorado and me in Phoenix would have different amounts of heating that we might need to deliver to our building or cooling over the course of the year or at our peak conditions. So FIAS quickly set out to use cost optimization to figure out climate-specific targets. That is the, I would say at a surface level, the biggest difference between FIAS and, and the PHI. They did cost optimization for the German climate, so for Central European climate, which works there, but doesn't work as well in the climates here. But FIAS and PHI are both standard setting research and certification bodies, one for the FIAS standard and then one for the PHI standard. PHN, to my understanding, is the Passive House Network, which is a group of individuals and organizations that support passive building throughout the country or passive house in different ways. So they have different chapters and host different events and maybe have different resources toward training to support passive building, but they don't themselves set standards for anything. They don't certify buildings. They're just really an advocacy kind of connection group across the country. And we have a similar one with FIAS called the, the FIAS Alliance, where we have different chapters throughout the country that host events and connect different locals in different areas. So. There's a lot of different groups. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hope that was kind of clear. Yeah, so I was thinking that PHN might be agnostic, I guess, between 
Theus and PHI, but through your description, it sounds like they lean towards promoting PHI. I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure many people out there doing passive building are agnostic or groups just for the sake of high performance building. But some practitioners that have done one standard or the other, I can only speak from the FIAS end, will come back to us and, and explain why and how the climate specificity of FIAS really fits what they're trying to achieve more than um, the PHI standard. But I, I can only really come from what you know the FIAS practitioners have told us. Yeah. But, Okay, well, getting back to core differences, the climate zones sure. seem to be huge, and it would seem like it would not be cost effective in any of the s southern climates to build to the PHI standard. So, so um, southern or northern? I mean, <laughs> so a central European climate does get cold, doesn't get very warm. But in terms of like a peak condition in Germany, it's very different than say Colorado or Chicago. It's a lot more extreme in the US and for heating and cooling than Germany. So cost effectiveness definitely was missing, at least from our, our experience with FIAS. We had projects in Louisiana and Minnesota trying to meet targets set for Central Germany or for Central Europe, I'm sorry. And it didn't feel right. Um, it didn't really work. And especially in the cooling dominated climates, like you're pointing out, really thriving to meet this heating target doesn't make a lot of sense. The cooling target needs to be revised. And I think there has been possibly some work done on the PHIM to add dehumidification into their targets. But from what I am aware of, the cooling target was set to just match the heating target. The heating target was set for Central Europe. And now there's some allowance for dehumidification, but it's not as tailored to all climates as the, the FIA standard is. What would be a, an analogous climate zone in the States to a Central European climate zone? Not the States, but Vancouver, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. Somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, something that has milder year-round temperatures, not as, as peaky, if you will, doesn't get quite as hot, doesn't get quite as cold. Something up there, Seattle, okay. something like that. Great. That's a great uh, kind of frame of reference. So let's next go back to ventilation. What sure. are your feelings, kind of the difference between the two? I I don't know enough about updated PHI standards or you know what they're doing with that, but I do know that FIAS added the EPA and or plus as like an additional layer of best practices for indoor air quality. So, I mean, we're definitely leaning on what we know are good programs rather than trying to reinvent the wheel with indoor air quality and of course you can get you know some level of air quality through air tightness and balanced ventilation and filtration but it's more than just you know there's more to it than just that um, which i think we know yeah. yeah the standard itself doesn't require radon mitigation or material selection or anything like that PHI. you're relying specifically on indoor air plus to do oh. that Correct. So, I mean, it depends how you describe the FIA standard. Indoor Plus is technically a co-requisite program. So yeah. we do require radon mitigation and, and all of that good stuff through adoption of the Indoor Plus standard. So we didn't make up the requirements. We just said, hey, we're focused on really the low loads and the energy performance, but we know there's this other stuff 
relative to high performance buildings, that's really important and doesn't show up in kilowatt hours or energy use, you know, but we know it's really important. So we, we kind of partnered with these other organizations to package together a, a nice solution. Perfect. And why why did FIAS adopt in a similar way the DOE Zero Energy Ready Homes program and in extension, because Energy Star is part of that, the Energy Star part of it? Yeah. A lot of this goes back to a partnership that was formed, I think, in 2013 with the Department of Energy and FIAS. Really what we're for the same reason as under our bus, there are some quality related elements to those programs that yes, they're likely inherent to passive building, but they're not outright insured without, you know, checking them and requiring them. Things related to moisture management at grade or things that FIAS has not made its own requirements for. So one is just to incorporate these best practices. The other is really to position ourselves possibly as kind of this next stepping stone beyond zero energy ready home. So if you can get to zero energy ready home, there's this next step up, which is FIAS. So we incorporate all of the programs that are encompassed in ZERH, but go above and beyond that. So for a builder that's familiar with those co-requisite programs, it's more understandable to say, okay, these are part of the FIAS program. And then there's these additional layers that, that bring it up to FIAS levels. So it's kind of in the market and recognized by the DOE as that next step, just to bring it more to the US market. So that was the transition we made in 2013 to the FIA standards was to encompass those programs. The DOE programs just moved to version two and FIA has just come out with the 2021 standard. Are they in alignment with each other? Yeah, so we work actively with the, you know, the program leads at those programs to ensure that, you know, when they're making updates to their program, they don't conflict with our program because of our you know, relationship and partnership. So they are in alignment and generally, if those programs update, FIAS will adopt you know, the latest version as of whatever date that you know, it becomes mandatory for that program. So yes, they, they are in short. In general, it seems to me that FIAS is selecting the R values and U values of the building thermal envelope, the house tightness, the peak loads and whatnot, but it's not telling a builder how to accomplish it, how to build it. And maybe that's a, a good reason why you've adopted the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program because it gives more guidance into water management a little bit. Sure. Uh, gives more guidance into installation of insulation and air barrier systems and those types of things. Do, does that yeah. ring true to you? Um maybe from a process standpoint we do train and certify builders and contractors to execute these things it's just not necessarily part of our process checklist when we're certifying a building yeah so i think you're right it does guide the team possibly better along by including those programs yeah it's kind of similar to the structure of the energy code where you have different ways of demonstrating compliance, but you have these, in essence, mandatory requirements that talk about insulation, installation, and right. testing. Yep. And, and that is, testing. yep. And um, we also add this like additional layer of quality assurance on site. So I think a lot of those programs already require raters, of course, that's another reason we teamed with those organizations and programs is they have this group um, of yeah. trained, yeah, like a, 
a cohort, a large cohort of trained individuals that are ready to go out and do ratings for these buildings. And, and what FIAS is doing is just adding another level on. So we require, um, you know, the air tightness testing, infrared imaging, commissioning of sorts, and installation quality inspection. And then we look at that for, for our certification program and make sure everything is up to the requirements of not only those co-requisite programs, but our, our additional layers. Yeah, and I'm a FIAS Raider, an Energy Star Raider, a HERS Raider. So Raiders have to go through this education process to be able to work within these programs. To your knowledge, does PHI have that kind of quality assurance mechanism? Not to my knowledge and definitely not to the level of FIAS. I believe I, I could get these details wrong, but in Europe, the relationship of kind of the architect to the design and construction is different than in the US. So I think that level, it was possibly just not something that was needed when the PHI standard formed out in, in Germany. Whereas in the US, it was very clear that we need this third level of quality assurance or this third party oversight. I don't believe they train and certify raters and verifiers, but it, it could be wrong. Yeah. And FIAS also requires that the design be modeled and you have your right. own software and that it get reviewed by the FIAS organization itself before it's built. Is that that's correct? correct yep. We have a team of certification reviewers and we have kind of a two-part review process for certification. One is for design. So design certification, ideally before you break ground, you get the design certification. And then we have final certification, which happens after construction, after all commissioning and testing is done. We get all the things from the rater or the verifier, depending on the building size, and then award the final, the final cert. So I'm hearing more and more folks saying, I'm going to build to the FIAS principles, but I'm not going to certify. What's the, the benefit of certification? I mean, there's... <laughs> The biggest one I would say is this additional level or yeah, I guess oversight from not only our review team, which looks at projects literally all day, every day and provides feedback to the team, looks for errors, red flags. I mean, it's that assurance throughout the, the review that you're getting what you designed or you hoped you designed, you know, getting that final product that you're trying to achieve. There's also, so throughout the design and throughout construction, having this third party on site, making sure that the design is actually what's built, super important to actually get a building that results in what you set out to achieve. So that's a big part is just the quality assurance and really insurance toward achieving those energy savings, achieving that comfort and health and quality. The other part from my perspective, I was the manager for the project certification team for maybe seven years. And a, a big benefit I see is that it shares knowledge with the community. So we would see different things from different project teams all the time. Um, and we would come up with solutions with different teams, what worked for them. And then we kind of package these things and we put it in our guidebook or we put it in a webinar or a research library. And we just make it available so that the next project team doesn't have to overcome that same hurdle or they can learn from past mistakes and um, just take a simpler, I don't know, it just helps, it just helps move the industry forward. If we're not all doing this in a silo, we're kind of that hub that collects all of this information and repurposes it for the, for the betterment of the industry. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I think pretty recently you came out with a prescriptive path through the, the FIAS program or tell us the difference between that and, and the normal kind of certification process. Yeah. The certification process is very similar, but the, the standard itself, we talked about those kind of four pillars of the standard, right? The quality assurance, the heating and cooling loads, the air tightness, and the source energy. So the air tightness and the quality assurance are ultimately the same. The air tightness target is a little bit tighter, but ultimately the, the methods and whatnot are the same. But for the source energy and for the heating and cooling loads, we use prescriptive requirements for that. So to, instead of using an energy model and heating and cooling load targets, annual and peak, uh, to say this is what you need to do with your enclosure, we prescribe our values for the wall, the roof, the floor, U values for the window, um, soil heat gain coefficient for the glass, and then a maximum winter to wall ratio like we had discussed earlier. So basically providing a recipe that we know would work in terms of the, those thermal elements that are intended to yield the same results as the performance package, but in a simpler fashion. So they're also a little more conservative for that reason, just because we need to ensure kind of the same level of quality through that prescriptive path. For overall energy, rather than again, modeling total energy of the building and setting a limit on that, we set essentially minimum thresholds for performance of the equipment in the building. So the appliances must meet a certain level, the heating, cooling equipment, the hot water. And I should mention the prescriptive path is limited in scope to single family only um, or townhouses and no fossil fuel combustion on site. So that made it a lot easier in terms of prescribing equipment and again, kind of ensuring the same results as the performance path. Is there also a form factor or basically a design that could not qualify if it's too complicated, too many jobs? Yes. yes. So there is a, it's kind of like a form factor. I'm trying to remember the exact word, but it's essentially that trying to limit the amount of surface area of the enclosure per, per square foot of living area. There is a requirement or a maximum ratio there, but it, I wouldn't say it's limiting necessarily or it's not restrictive. Uh, what we're trying to do is really prevent really poor design rather than, you know, force cubes. There's a lot of freedom within that ratio. We just don't want something really crazy yeah. in terms of enclosure. So I think that's not a, a challenging metric to meet, at least as far as I've, I've heard. I think a lot of folks think that passive buildings are, especially on the residential side, are, are not particularly attractive buildings. They tend to be more square and whatnot. Uh, is that driven by the the energy modeling or by just unimaginative I, design? I, I, I honestly doubt it's driven by energy modeling because that would lead you to think that, you know, these architects are doing iterative modeling with different geometries up front. And I, I doubt it. I think it is simpler in terms of detailing, less corners you have, less turns, you know, all of that. It is simpler to execute, especially in terms of air tightness. I'm not an architect, so I don't know why people choose to design the way they choose to. Yeah. But I, I mean, we've seen all shapes and sizes of, of single family homes. And I think it might just be more driven by the, the architects that are attracted to this um, more than anything. Or the modern, more modern looks. I don't, I don't think it has really that much to do with the passive house part of it, but it could. Great. I guess one one last question with regards to kind of the standards. 
Do you have any idea of a comparison between PHI and FIAS in terms of insulation levels and whatnot in a cold climate and, and maybe in a warm climate? I can tell you a, a gut reaction. It depends on building size too, but let's stick to single family. I could say if you were certifying to PHI in Chicago, that's where I'm from, you would have higher insulation levels I believe trying to achieve the PHI standard than the FIA standard. You would also likely have higher solar gain on your windows and probably higher cooling loads. So you, you maybe drive down heating more to meet the heating target for the PHI and then have less heating and possibly more cooling as a result of that um, because you can add too much insulation and kind of flip the building's needs around. In a cooling dominated climate, Sure, let's go as far as to say Phoenix. You would definitely need less insulation for the FIAS. Actually, this, this is a little tricky. I think it would be challenging to meet the PHI targets for cooling somewhere like Phoenix because it, it wasn't set out to achieve a climate like this. So I think it would drive you to use a lot of passive cooling. The heating threshold would be easy to meet, so you probably wouldn't need a ton of insulation. But it, it wouldn't, it just doesn't fit right, if that makes sense. The the balance between heating and cooling would just be off between the targets and what the, the building actually naturally does with, you know, good passive measures. In, in general, would you not say that regardless of the climate, you need a well-insulated airtight envelope? Yes, regardless of the climate. I mean, well-insulated meaning quality insulation. Yeah. Generally, we're seeing... Um, not just quality, but continuous insulation. Even if it's not a ton, that does a lot to minimize or mitigate thermal bridging, increase interior surface temperatures, reduce the risk of condensation or mold on in the inside, which improves also indoor air quality and longevity of the building. So continuous exterior insulation is uh, kind of a gimme and something I think almost all of our projects have. Does Passive House take into account kind of the diminishing returns of adding yeah. you know, significant R values, you know, the R seventies or eighties. Yeah. So the FIA standard, that's like it, almost exactly how we set out to set these heating and cooling mode targets. As we looked at, you know, you can add another inch of insulation, it saves energy, but it increased cost, right? So where is that sweet spot with diminishing returns or no return on investment? So that that's exactly how the FIA's performance targets were set for heating and cooling. Terrific. Uh, passive building seems to be really taking off in the multifamily world and not as well in the single family market. Do you have any thoughts why? Yeah, I have a, a handful. The first I would say is we saw the original growth happen when passive building started being awarded credits within low-income housing tax credit applications. So these are essentially applications to receive additional funding on affordable housing projects for multifamily buildings that are issued by the states. When the um, state agencies put Passive House in, now these design teams knew they'd get additional points if they tried to design to that, and that would help them get additional funding sources. So teams started to just learn what Passive Building was, even just through those application processes. And then as one state did it and learned from it, we're like, this is great. Basically, they're seeing not a ton of incremental costs, close to zero sometimes, but really good benefits for the occupants. It kind of boomed and other states also took this up or other groups advocated to put that into those plans. So 
there's that, and that is why I think affordable housing, it has just boomed over the past eight years, I'd say, um, but really more exponential now. Another is incentive programs, just giving people kind of that little nudge to do the feasibility study or take the next step to see what it would be to do a senior project. That little bit of cash up front to eliminate the risk for the project team helped a lot. I also think it is generally less of a leap to go from what typical multifamily teams are doing to what the FIA standard is requires for compliance. Multifamily buildings have a, a better, more favorable ratio of enclosure area to floor area. So when you're thinking about loads per square foot and you're thinking about passive building requires upgrades to the enclosure, it just requires less uh, a multifamily building per square foot than a single family building, which has more enclosure area per condition square foot. So it's kind of that favorable ratio, which, you know, isn't because our standards do vary by building size. I wouldn't say that's a huge driver of it because um, we do scale our, our targets based on how large the building is. So that factor is taken into account. So they don't get off easy necessarily, but it is, it's just slightly different. And they also, larger buildings or multifamily buildings tend to have more internal load. So they're less enclosure dominated. And I think that's really why they possibly need less insulation than a single family building in the same climate zone. The... Maybe, sorry, maybe one more. Multifamily project teams are have more sophistication and tools and resources to execute things, I think, than single family. Um, single family, you know, could could be a variety of people trying to deliver this building, but not at the same, typically the same level as like a design firm, you know, for larger projects. So they have that benefit of already understanding how to incorporate certain processes into workflows and things. The incentive programs that you're talking about that have helped kind of bring multifamily into it. Are they set at one of your specific certification categories? And can you explain, I think you have three or four different certification yeah, categories. Yeah. So we have, we'll, we'll call it two, but I'll explain there are varieties, I guess. So we have two main categories, core and zero. Core is basically our baseline standard, which incorporates all the best practices for passive building, you know, good equipment and everything and meets that source energy threshold we talked about. Zero takes all of that and then also adds active renewable energy systems to generate as much electricity as the building uses on an annual basis. So that net zero. Our prescriptive path aims to achieve core. So it's still kind of the same level of performance. It's just a prescriptive route to it rather than a performance route to it. And then for an existing building, it could be core revive or zero revive, which are just our our certification brand for our retrofit projects. And so the incentive programs, <laughs> to your main question, they could they could achieve both, or it really depends on the structure of the incentive program. So depending on the state or the agency, some of them are looking for net zero, you know, to fund a net zero building. So they would pick the zero program. Some of them are just looking to do what a lot of them call green or sustainable certifications. They would pick the core program. So it really depends on where they see FIAS fitting within their their program structure. And the it aligns with the DOE Ready program, a DOE yes. Zero Energy Ready program, because it's not requiring that you put renewables on, but you're getting to the point where it makes sense to to do that. In the same way that it might make sense to start looking at electrification in these buildings, 
how does CS fit into these climate action goals that different municipality sure. has for decarbonization and electrification? Yeah, so our core prescriptive and our zero paths do not allow fossil fuel combustion on site. So we are going all electric with those. But a really key point with passive buildings is that the loads are very low relative to a typical building. And that is a piece that's really important for decarbonization of our electric grid. The, the peak load on the grid is really what it correlates most directly with the generation infrastructure needed to support that building. And as we integrate more renewables, keeping low loads in buildings and flexible loads in buildings is going to be really important to actually integrating more and more renewable intermittent resources. So in terms of electrification, we're not only saying, yes, we would like you to electrify, but we, we make sure the loads are low to kind of facilitate more renewables onto the grid. And then beyond that, we have requirements for all of our projects for EV readiness, electric vehicle readiness, to start to facilitate more EVs coming online and not leave behind certain projects that are being built now when we know that's that's part of the kind of electrification future. So to be and, clear, you're saying that core and zero only allow electrification. Don't you can't bring gas the, to the site. The core prescriptive. The prescriptive, core prescriptive. path okay. and zero. Yep. So our regular baseline core will allow for natural gas, but I'm glad you resurfaced this. We require electrification readiness. So we require the team to be ready at the next equipment cycle to swap out their natural gas equipment with electric equipment. Perfect. It seems like that's in alignment with some of the more progressive jurisdictions that have mm -hmm. active climate action goals and whatnot, which potentially is leading to passive building starting to be codified, most predominantly in Massachusetts, probably, uh, maybe New York City as well. Sure. Are you seeing that trend happening in in mainstream America? Is that, the, or maybe the question is, is that the main reason why jurisdictions are looking for yeah. codifying okay. it? I, I think so. I think a lot of jurisdictions have climate action plans, but don't plan maybe as a loose term. Um, they don't necessarily know how they're going to achieve those goals. And when they see data or real performance data from these projects showing how you can use FIAS to solve kind of the building portions of their, their goals. Um, I think that's a really good reason for, you know, jurisdictions to adopt FIAS. I, I do think that's a big reason for it, definitely. How do we make passive building more acceptable in the mainstream building world? I think a lot of it is, is demystifying the concepts. I think a lot of practitioners here at Passive House, I, I've met many of them actually. Every time I go to a conference or talk about Passive House, there's at least one person that thinks it's something that it's really not, thinks it's some crazy concept um, that requires all these, you know, fancy gadgets and things from, you know, countries all over the world. And it, it's really not. Um, it's just kind of a better way of building. You can use all the same, almost all the same materials and principles and tactics that you use now, but it just requires extra thought and detailing and you know care throughout the design and construction process so i think demystifying what the concept is and bringing it closer to um, what it actually is rather than being this kind of far out standard i think it's a big one and then there's kind of this industry inertia 
issue where the construction industry just doesn't change quickly. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, we've always done it this way, it works fine, why would we do it any differently? Especially, you know, for mass or production builders that they're doing hundreds of these things at the lowest cost possible. And so they will meet the minimum requirements of whatever the minimum requirements are for their building and, and no more because why would they? And from a client perspective or someone that's searching for buying a home, it's challenging because there is this balance of different priorities for different homeowners or clients. And if you could take out the, I, don't, I wouldn't want to touch the granite countertop, but something else, you know, in the home and put it in the, the quality of the building shell, it's difficult to sell that because the, the general population also doesn't fully understand. Uh, so the selling the benefits of comfort and resilience and health in buildings and homeowners or clients asking for that and knowing passive buildings, the way to deliver that, um, I think we need to go at it from, from both ends. Um, because once that's being demanded in the market, people will need to find a way to provide that. I'm working as the new homes building advisor for the Marshall Fire rebuild mm -hmm. uh, here in Colorado. And what really resonates for me right now is resiliency. Mm -hmm. And through these natural uh, severe weather events that are happening all across the country, rebuilding as we've rebuilt in the past just doesn't make sense. Couldn't agree maybe you don't need to go. Yeah. Maybe you don't need to go all the way to passive house, but the passive house principles are a great starting point for other resiliency uh, issues and durability issues. And I guess maybe has FIAS considered or looked at add-ons like the fortified wind program or the wildfire prepared home programs that IBHS has put out? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked. In our new constru construction, I'm sorry, program, we have not incorporated those, but in our retrofit program, we actually have a really exciting program that we're launching next year, which is a whole different framework for passive building that uses first resiliency as kind of the metric to tell you how far to go with the thermal performance of the enclosure. You have to sustain a certain interior condition during a grid outage for a certain number of days in both the heating and cooling season. But we also reference those standards you're talking about, fortified and all these other really important standards for addressing resilience and potential other natural disasters for the building that aren't incorporated right now, but I, I agree with you will be will continue to be very important. So those those exact standards are are in our, our retrofit program that we will be launching next year. Along with that, it sounds like you're launching some new training programs. Yeah. Are those programs uh, aligned with construction techniques or design techniques? I, yeah. I bring it up because so much of the, you know, you add insulation to the house, you get more than you get some issues with moisture management and ensuring that you're not getting condensation in the assemblies. So the techniques to build and the level of detail is heightened. And sure. I don't think there's a requirement that you use a FIA certified builder. Uh, no. So how do you get, how do you get this knowledge out there? So you're not getting tons yeah. of failures in, in a FIA's house. So, for that first or the your second part of your question for the moisture management and kind of vapor control on the assemblies this is something that we review in scrutiny during the design of the project 
we have pass-fail requirements for vapor control and assembly. So we are making sure the design team is not designing something that will fail. So that one we are now we don't mess around with throughout the design and then of course the verification on site they have to make sure that's actually the assembly that was constructed if it changes it has to come back to us for approval so we're we're pretty we take that part pretty seriously but there is the execution of that so one of the trainings that we're launching next year is our trades training which will be geared at the trades so right now we have a fias certified builder training which the word and you know term builder spans quite a few people on a project team from uh, the GC down to possibly at the trades. Um, so we're trying to be more focused with the builder training versus the individual trades. With, within the trades, we'll have two different specializations. We'll have the enclosure specialist, and then we'll have the mechanical system specialist. And then if somebody wants to do both, we have, I think, the master specialist is what we're calling it right now. But this is really to gear up our workforce to execute these high-performance buildings, understand the new you know, systems, methods, materials, techniques, terminology even to, to get to that level. And then the other big training that we're launching is for the FIAS associate, which is kind of like a developer or maybe a head honcho at a company, somebody that needs to understand a lot of what you and I are talking about right now, you know, the basis of certification general building science, kind of this holistic package. We call it our foundations training right now, but it's supposed to give you that foundational level of what, what is FIAS and passive building and the you know general principles of building science to know enough to know how to approach a project. So those are, those are the two big ones, the trades and foundation. A lot of folks that are involved in the passive building movement, I guess, are quite passionate about it. And yep. almost to the point where they're almost zealots and really won't listen to any alternatives or, you know, issues with it. And I just wonder if uh, Theus recognizes that and, and how you might address that to better ensure the continual push of, of passive building into mainstream building. Yeah, I mean, I would say at least I can talk from the Theus perspective. I've seen quite a bit of evolution. And we are constantly taking feedback from the practitioners in the industry that's actually out, you know, boots on the ground implementing this stuff, whether it's into policies or the designers or, you know, whatever part of the building delivery process people are in. We listen and we have evolved, I think, based on industry needs. Uh, and I think we will continue to do that or we won't achieve our, our mission. Um, so, we as FIAS can at least do that. And then we can set that example, hopefully for the industry as a whole. But, you know, there are a lot of really passionate people, but I, I don't know, I guess I haven't, I haven't really seen, I guess the, the backlash or, or the things you're referencing here um, where people aren't willing to kind of evolve along with best technologies and understanding of, of everything. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for speaking with us on the Billcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Robbie. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you 
for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.